Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1986, a retired naval officer appeared on David Letterman's late-night talk show. So imagine it for a moment. You've got a very straight-laced Navy type sitting in this comfy chair next to Letterman's desk. And Letterman is there with his old-time microphone on the desk, and he's poking fun at the officer. I'm guessing that whatever your mental image is right now, it may be a little off. First of all, the officer was almost 80. The person had been a pioneer with a piece of equipment that even in 1986 was still pretty exotic. And she was a woman. And you worked on the original computer in this country, right? I was very fortunate. The Navy owed me to the first big computer in the United States, mm-hmm. Mark I at Harvard. It was called Mark I at Harvard? Mm-hmm. Now, in those days, the thing was... 51 feet long, 8 feet high, and 8 feet deep. And, and that was the pocket model. <laughs> Grace Hopper was born on December 9th, 1906. She would have turned 111 this year. And somewhat late in life, she decided she had to be in the military. So you were older than most of the other uh, yes, enlistees or recruits? I just barely got in. I was 37. 37? Now, what, what interested you about going into the Navy at 37? Well, World War II to begin with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's going to been one of the hardest things to tell the people in this yeah. country. There was a time when everybody in this country all did one thing together. In more than 40 years in the Navy, Hopper was part of a vanguard of computer pioneers, people who made the technology that we live with now possible. Now, I know nothing about computers, and you know everything about computers. You're, they've called you... Not everything, all I can. Yeah, but is there anybody who would know more? Oh, I expect some of these good youngsters coming along know more. But uh, you're known as the queen of software. Is that right? More or less. You hear the laugh there because the audience thought that software was kind of a strange and funny word. Letterman said it made him think of Tupperware, which goes to show how much the world has changed. Kurt Beyer quite literally wrote the book on Grace Hopper, whose story is amazing and sad and triumphant, kind of all mixed together. He's a lecturer at the Haas School of Business at the University of California at Berkeley. Kurt, welcome. Oh, good to be here. So if someone is not in tech and Grace Hopper is this really important computer programmer, why should an ordinary person care about that? Well, I'm sure people have heard of Steve Jobs and Bill Mm -hmm. Gates and some of the newer crowd, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Um, All of those people's careers, livelihoods, and fortunes are based on the innovations of Grace Hopper. So without Grace Hopper, there are is no layer of software computer scientists who build large billion-dollar companies. Hmm. Um, Grace Hopper talked on uh, David Letterman about her decision to join the military. Talk a little bit about how December 7th, 1941, uh, the day that Pearl Harbor was bombed, how did that day change her life? It's actually where I start the book because from studying lots of different technological innovations, oftentimes it's a crisis Mm -hmm. which causes a society's resources to shift in a new direction. And not only the society's resources, but if you think back to our own experiences with 9-11, oftentimes there's a lot of personal soul-searching after the the crisis or event as well. So Hopper was living a somewhat ordinary life. She was a uh, uh, PhD in mathematics, a professor at Vassar. She was married um, and within six months after Pearl Harbor, uh, she had left her husband, quit her job, and was trying to get into the Navy. Hmm. Um, but it was not, we should say, 
easy for her to get in, right? Well, at that time, there were no women who were officers. So her first year of trying to get in, she was unsuccessful until Roosevelt created the WAVES program so that uh, women could participate in the Hmm. war effort Hmm. as officers. There's a picture in your book of the 10 people, she was in the Navy, of the 10 people in uh, in sort of her crew who were working on this very early computer, the Mark I. It's nine men and Grace. Um, And you say, like, her commander, the person in charge of this whole team, was not happy at all that a woman had been um, put as sort of the second person in charge in his command. That's right. Howard Aiken was the uh, designer of the Mark I. And because he was not receiving uh, much support from the Harvard administration uh, for his uh, invention, he decided to start working with uh, the United States Navy. Hmm. And so even though the Mark I was based in a Harvard building, it was funded and staffed by the U.S. Navy. Now, because he made that decision, the U.S. Navy then was involved in sending the personnel Mm -hmm. who would be working on the Mark Mm -hmm. I. Uh, And because women were now officers, uh, and Grace Hopper was a mathematical expert, Mm -hmm. uh, she was assigned to the Harvard Mark I, and because of the rank structure, she was number two in command. Mm -hmm. So initially, Aiken uh, was not pleased with this, but he came to very quickly realize that Hopper was indispensable. Mm. And not only was it rare um, in the 1940s to find people with PhDs in math, I'm guessing it was incredibly rare to find women with PhDs in math, which Grace Hopper had. So the one thing that really struck me when I was doing my research, I I had the assumption, like many people do, that women's rights and and the progress of women within uh, society is constantly progressing and improving year after year. It's linear in some sense, right? It's not only linear, it's sinusoidal, right? So we actually had more... Now you're getting technical. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We had more women with graduate degrees in mathematics in the 20s than we did in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and we don't see those numbers breached again until the 1980s. And then there's been a staggering fall-off since then. Okay, so she was maybe in a time where it was not as uncommon as you might think then to run into a woman with a PhD in math. She had this window of opportunity that she was kind of born and raised into, and that window actually shifted again against women in those types of fields in the 50s and early 60s, and then again in the 90s and 2000s. And for the sort of non-computer programmer, what was Grace Hopper brought in to do? And I should say, this computer, just as like Letterman talked about it a little bit and when he joked that, you know, this computer was the pocket model, but I, maybe you can give the dimensions of it, but this was huge. Like, this was a filling-the-room kind of computer. This was nothing like the laptops or desktops that people are used to now. That's that's right. Uh, so not only was the size uh, much different, but the speed, right? This is one of the fastest computing machines ever created, and it could do three additions per second. Mm -hmm. And your smartphone in your pocket can do a billion per second. So that was considered revolutionary at the time. But the the more important point, and this is why Hopper is so critical to the history of computing, is these first computers were like any other technology ever created by mankind. That technology only did one thing. So if you design a hammer, 
it hammers nails. If you design a lawnmower, you mow lawns. You don't do anything else with it. And the Harvard Mark I was actually built to do ballistics tables and just print out all different versions of the same equation. And so it was, in essence, hardwired that way. So the great revolutionary jump that Hopper made was, well, if we layer some what we call software today or programming on top of the hardware, we generalize the hardware, and we update the software, we change the software, we can have this machine do ballistics calculations, we can have this machine do calculations around ship design, Mm -hmm. we could turn it into a flight simulator, Mm -hmm. and then if you think of every single app that's on your smartphone, every single one of those apps is a different uh, technology, even though your hardware never changes. Right. So it's like a ser- she's writing out a series of commands telling the computer what to do in today or tomorrow or whatever. That's right. So yeah. it literally is a technological break, right? It's, wow, we can generalize a piece of hardware and literally through programming, we can make it whatever we want it to be. How did she go about this? Because we talked about this. She had a PhD in math. Not a PhD in computers. I mean, there were no, there was no such thing as computer science. Nobody knew anything about computers. But she, you know, the Navy sends her to work on this enormous computer, one of the first of its kind. There's no, like, tech support to call. How did she figure this out? I mean, like, she didn't know what she was doing, and nobody <laughs> could help her. Yeah, the way she would joke about it was... You know, she turned to the manual, but realized there was no manual, so she <laughs> wrote right, the manual. That's right, exactly. I mean, if <laughs> anybody did, in can fact, imagine, write the first book. Yeah, yeah exactly. she wrote a, published it in '46, and it was really the first uh, book about computers and programming that it was ever created. So she had a she had to learn by doing. It was the war effort. They were working 24 hours a day. Uh, she was driving her team very hard. And initially, they were doing those ballistics tables, but Washington started calling them with different other types of problems. And mm. one of the most famous ones they worked on was to figure out how to cause a, a ball to implode in equal directions, and she was able to solve it. And mm. it turns out that was the equation for the atomic bomb. Whoa. Did she, like, when did she find out or did she know that she was working on the technology for the atomic bomb? Well, she was working with a, a man named John von Neumann, who was a very famous mathematician mm-hmm. at the time, um, who was consulting with the government. What she didn't know is that uh, he was consulting for the Manhattan Project. Okay. So um, at the time, she did not know this. Hmm. But but she did, uh, and you write about this, she did um, get to a point where she was you know, working very hard. She was kind of lonely. Um, she started drinking an awful lot. Um, And actually, at one point, uh, she got arrested. That's right. So if I compare the career path of Howard Aiken to Grace's career path after the war. And Howard Aiken is um, the guy who's running, who developed the computers, running the whole show there. Okay. Exactly. So even though he was a graduate student at, at Harvard, completing his Ph.D. when he first got the idea for the computer, Um, and then went to the Navy to receive funding for the actual project. When the war was completed, Harvard made him a full professor. Mm -hmm. And pretty much they told Grace that, you know, she's only a contract worker after the war and that her contract will will be limited because they have no permanent position for women Mm -hmm. at Harvard. 
And then the Navy released her as well because right. they shut down the Waves program. So, you know, she's, you can understand in, yeah. in some respects that you're, you're 46, you're, uh, you can't do what you're meant to do, right? You mm-hmm. can't do what you've become an expert in. Mm-hmm. And this, remember, this was, this was just the beginning of this industry. So um, I think she turned to alcohol and uh, she, she actually tried to commit suicide. And it was one of her colleagues at Harvard, Edmund Berkeley, who would be a very important figure in computing also because he founded the Association of Computing Machinery, the, the Society of, of Early Computer Experts. And also he's figured out one of the, the first uses of these computers, which was for Prudential Insurance Company. Um, he's the one who I found his intervention letter in the archives, and he just mapped out this beautiful four or five page letter, which I, I have excerpts in the book about how they need her. The, mm-hmm. the, this new computing industry needs, needs her. She's their natural leader. And so she, she, even with this debilitating problem she had, if she could only work 20% a week, she was still far better at this than all of them. Mm-hmm. So uh, I give him a lot of credit and I give her original Harvard team a lot of credit for not only saving Grace during that period of her life, but uh, setting her up to do the phenomenal things that come next. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking with Kurt Beyer, author of Grace Hopper and the Invention of the Information Age. Um, so I think we all know this image of Rosie the Riveter and that women were called into service during World War II. I just wonder how difficult it was during the 50s, even during the late 40s, to transition out of the military and then be a powerful woman in a workforce where there certainly were not nearly as many women as there had been uh, during the war effort. Yes, that's a very interesting conundrum I had to solve. How in the 1950s, when uh, kind of the, the public effort is to to help women get back into the uh, the households and uh, maybe out of public life, this is the exact time that she is uh, building a career, becoming a leader. My answer to that is oftentimes in the early phases of a new technology or, or a new product or service, people who are the pioneers tend to be on the margins, tend to be the outsiders. Mm-hmm. So think about a male from a prominent family in the 1950s who goes to an Ivy League school he would not announce to his family that there's this very unique, strange technology that right. just a handful of people are interested in. I think I'm going to work in that field. Right, right. Go to today, and of course, you know, someone who goes to an Ivy League, that we, we have so many of them right, here in the right. Bay Area now. Right. But during the 50s, this was still a, a, a fringe technology. Right, so right. I have this wonderful picture in the book. I think it's from 1956. And there's Hopper there, and she's working with three young people. One's African-American, one's Indian, and one's white. And this is the Mm mid-50s. So many of the pioneers of this period in the computing age uh, were women in particular. Do you think, uh, you must have thought about this, but if Grace Hopper could sort of see the reach of computers today, 
What do you think would surprise her and what do you think would not surprise her? So when when the, she pulled uh, different groups together to create the universal language of COBOL, this was in 1959, 1960, um, many programmers thought the the language would never make it because it was almost too simple to use. And Hopper's point was exactly. (laughs) That's what we want. (laughs) Right, right, right. And at the time, remember, the computers were very expensive. They were in air-conditioned rooms. And Mm -hmm. generally, they were used only by large companies and government agencies. Mm -hmm. So the way she designed COBOL and used her influence to have that become the standard um, she had this notion of democratization. Uh, I think she'd be surprised by two things. One, 90% of all financial transactions today are COBOL. Wow. So that would That's shock her, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. This is a language that she created <laughs> in the late 50s, right. early 60s. 80% of all active code in the world is COBOL. Wow. So, that's how dominant COBOL became. Mm. And it's every time we use a credit card, every mm. time we use an ATM machine, it's a COBOL program running behind it. So I think that would shock her and maybe disappoint her as well, right? It's like, wow, you couldn't have improved on this? In, in <laughs> that's right. I came up with this in, what did you say, 1959? <laughs> I think she'd be thrilled, though, that each of us has a computer in our pocket now. Kurt Beyer is the author of Grace Hopper and the Invention of the Information Age. He's also a lecturer at the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley. Kurt, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. We've got the full interview that Grace Hopper did with David Letterman, which we played clips from at the beginning of this segment. That's at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. And one more note about computer science before we leave the topic. A few weeks ago, we aired a segment about how useful a liberal arts education can be. And in that interview, author George Anders said this. If you think about it, engineering is not about working through ambiguity. Engineering is about getting the right answer. One of our listeners who teaches computer science at a university wanted to lodge a complaint. What, he wrote, this is the kind of gross misconception I often find with those from the liberal arts. Their picture of the sciences is for the most part clueless. Are they kidding? In my nearly 50 years in the sciences, I've only ever had high uncertainty problems. Science and engineering is all about dealing with ambiguity, uncertainty, and the unforeseen. Feel free to write to us whether you're feeling certain, uncertain, or somewhere in between. Our email is innovationhub at wgbh.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, analyzing the genetic weaknesses of more than 25,000 tumors to craft precision treatments for cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash BeatCancer. Once upon a time, about a decade ago, there was a scientist who dreamed of starting a company. And for a while, things went pretty well. He got some cash from a fellow named Bill Gates and from lots of other investors. I knew exactly what how to pitch it, and I knew what they were looking for, and I 
probably subconsciously as I developed the technology, was in, embodying some of their strategies, I think. The guy is named Jay Whitaker, and the idea for his company went something like this. What if you could create a whole bunch of batteries to store the renewable energy that has become increasingly popular in America? It could probably be very useful to a lot, a lot of folks. And if you could do it using very environmentally benign materials, and if you could do it such that it could be manufactured easily and therefore scaled up quickly, you might really have something. And Whitaker did have something. It was a saltwater battery. Not toxic, not flammable, worked great. And he wanted to manufacture it right here in the U.S., near Pittsburgh, where he's a professor of energy engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. He also believed that his batteries could be optimized to work with solar panels, which have plummeted in price and surged in accessibility over the last several years. Right, so the sun rises in the morning. There's a lot of energy from the solar panel, but it's set, the sun sets at night and there's no energy. So you then have to figure out how am I going to use that solar energy all the time. So the battery was actually designed to be charged in six or seven hours and discharged over you know, 12 to 14 hours uh, to sort of complement the, the daily solar cycle. Ten years ago, the possibility that these sorts of batteries might become so widespread seemed a little pie in the sky. But there were clues that it could work. There was a crazy company called Tesla that no one knew much about. They <laughs> were putting a bunch of, of small, it. yeah, they yeah. were putting a bunch of small batteries in a big car, and it just seemed like a silly idea at the time. And outside of that, you know, some automotive companies were looking at different solutions, but nothing was there. Uh, the, the movie Who Killed the Electric Car was sort of recently yeah. out. Um, there was just a very different, very different environment. Whitaker raised hundreds of millions of dollars from some very smart people. The factory in Pennsylvania started up. It was doing well. But things changed. Other kinds of batteries started flooding the market, like lithium-ion ones, which are in your computer and in your cell phone. And Whitaker's company, Aquion, went bankrupt. That, though, is not the end of the story. It turns out Aquion is going to change the national electricity grid, but not America's grid, China's. A Chinese company scooped up Aquion, just like Chinese companies have scooped up a lot of innovative renewable energy companies in America. They're going to take the technology developed here, pump more money into it, use it in China, and potentially sell it to the rest of the world, including, maybe us. Which kind of makes you go, what? Why are we allowing this to happen? Jay Whitaker says, our politics swing back and forth. China's never do. When you have a fairly autocratic, uh, you know, government system that can simply decide and execute on things, they can decide and execute on things. Uh And there's been an awful lot of ebb and flow of, you know, the Obama administration was extremely pro-clean technology, was very, you know, adherent to all of the climate science that, that is existent out there. Uh, and the current administration is taking different pathways, mm-hmm. right? And so that ricochet, that whiplash is, you know, it makes locally or United States-wise developing industries difficult, especially around the industry, the energy industry. Whereas in China, they have a very clear path. They recognize that, you know, they have, for a lot of reasons, they want to minimize the amount of fossil fuels that right. they consume. And they're simply just going to do this. I mean, they and they're the choking same thing. on smog. I mean, they have they're like the incentive smog, exactly. to do it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really quite visible to them in their right. big cities, right? Uh, and that 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 smog is actually interestingly, well, it's obviously environmentally awful. It is 
helpful in the policy process because it allows them to really visualize what's happening. Right. Uh, we don't have quite quite the urgency, right? If, I believe if uh, Washington D.C. were was uh, you know dr- covered in in you know some horrible smog condition that was directly related to fossil fuels. Uh, we may have a different decision process about. sometimes, right? So, yeah, who knows? Yeah. So you talked about the ebb and flow of politics. And I have to say, mm-hmm. when I have, for years, when I've gone to conferences, when I've talked to scientists um, about research into renewable energy, their complaints or what they have to say sounds incredibly similar to what you said. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just play a clip for you from um, Nathan Lewis, who is a chemist at the California Institute of Technology, Caltech. Um, I visited him in his lab in uh, Pasadena about a year ago. And he he told me the story of like that he got into energy research in the 1970s because obviously huge energy crisis. He was a teenager. He was very like you know, sort of not excited, but motivated by what was going Uh on. Um, And then he said a lot of the momentum coming out of that crisis was lost uh, because the government changed its priorities. Uh, Here he is talking about what could be ahead this time. The energy problem has definitely captured the imagination of this generation of young scientists. And from a viewpoint of of national funding, uh, the worst thing we can do is cut that talent pool off by stopping funding for these projects because then we screw up all that momentum that we've built up and we also lose the lead that we have built up with respect to other countries who are trying to pour resources into this. Uh, Jay Whitaker from Carnegie Mellon, are you Do you share those concerns about the kind of ebb and flow of politics around this? Oh, absolutely. And I'll I'll say to you, I I know Nate well. Uh, He and I have uh, have gone way back. In fact, his wife was my boss for a while at at the (laughs) GPL. So, uh, and and he and I, I've been in a variety of meetings where this has been talked about explicitly. And the energy research community is acutely aware of this. We watch it closely. And this is something that the, the funding environment and the way that federal and even state and even local uh, funds are allocated towards energy is something that really matters. And the other thing that that is often lost is even though we have poured a lot of money into this and it's become, you know, a a good national movement, and and Nate's right, there's an awful lot of interest amongst this generation of scientists and engineers. Uh, At the same time, the actual amount is a fairly small, if you compare Department of Energy's budget to the budget of a, of a multinational petroleum company or mm-hmm. of a pharmaceutical company or of a major computer company, it's small. Like the amount of money that actually goes into energy-related basic or, or even you know, applied research for new energy technologies, um, while very helpful to the country, is not that large. And it, it shouldn't be a, a political football to speak of, just because from a fractional perspective, it doesn't really have – the actual amount is not something that's dramatic. And this is it's a painful thing to watch, because if if we simply decided to uh, continue to sort of fund at a similar level for the next decade, a certain type, uh, the the best, most interesting five things around energy technology development, whatever those might be, if everyone knew that's what it was going to be for the next 10 years, it would be a much more stable uh, and beneficial research environment that would be much more productive. Um, what happens if that budget for um, innovation in in energy, in new energy, in clean energy, things to address global warming? What if happens if that just gets 
completely taken out of the budget and, uh, you know, or, or just so stripped down that it can't help very many people anymore. Does that mean that technologies do not get developed? Or does that mean that Singapore develops them or England develops them or Germany? De- you know what I mean? Like, does it just get outsourced to somewhere else that whose government says, yeah, we are going to fund this? So that, that question is difficult to answer in, in, with completeness. For sure, many other you know, na- international agencies, other forward-looking countries, are also pouring a lot of money into this kind of thing. And the, there's a theory around innovation and invention called the, the theory of cultural maturation, which is uh, good ideas occur simultaneously or nearly simultaneously multiple places around the world uh, because similar researchers are exposed to, uh, you know, information that gives them similar ideas. So there's an argument that if, if, you know, we don't do it, yeah, maybe it'll pop up in Singapore or it might pop up in China or Japan or Korea or uh, Germany or wherever. But at the same, the same point, if it doesn't happen here, then we're going to fall behind. This is just what, what Nate Lewis said. Right. Um, you know, we have in some ways in our R&D and intellectual property basis, we have put enough money in to, to get some foothold and to, to create some momentum, and that will be lost. And mm-hmm. then where will we be? Uh, if, if the uh, you know, energy uh, economy and the, the fact that energy technology is, is truly important for the growth of uh, economic development of a country in the next century, uh, if we are flat-footed on that, we'll be, we will fall behind. And so I think it's more of the United States is at risk of falling behind as opposed to the world is at risk of not having these technologies. Okay. I think we would be very egocentric to think that only the United States and researchers here could invent things that are meaningful. Okay. So the technologies will exist. We just won't own them. We might not own them and we might not uh, figure out how to use them in an effective way. And there's, mm-hmm. a, there's an awful lot of cultural things that happen when you have a culture of innovation around a particular kind of technology. Um, you know, it's adopted more quickly, um, you know, and there's many other things that, that come with that quick adoption. You have people then get better at using other things that are similar and there's a whole innovation sort of thing that happens. And if we don't have it here, if it's not something, if we watch other countries do it first, uh, we become a passive bystander and it, it's a slower thing for the United States and mm-hmm. it might be problematic in the long run. I mean, it's hard to say what will happen, but right. this is possible. Are there uh, sort of rays of hope that you see um, when you look around the country and you think about um, and clean energy startups that are just getting going um, or that are you know, maybe a little more, more mature? Does America have some really interesting sort of potential weapons here um, in the in the race towards you know clean energy? Absolutely. I mean, I think. Tesla is a, is a great example. I mean, right. there's an awful lot. Not a of, startup you know, exactly, but you know. No, <laughs> but it, it was. And, and it, sure. it, but no, but, but that's it's super important that they've become, they were a startup, yes, right? Yes, And mm-hmm. they've converted. Uh, you know, and, and you, one of the things that happened, you probably remember the Solyndra uh, debacle. Sure. Solyndra was a solar panel company or solar cell company that took a big loan guarantee and lost it all, mm-hmm. right? They uh, went flat-footed. And it was a huge political issue uh, yep. for the Obama administration yes. and the Department of Energy at the time. At around the same time, you probably don't know, or most people don't know, that Tesla also took a loan guarantee. Huh. Um, and they used it, and they paid it off. They repaid it back early. And hmm. uh, you know, and this was a success. It's a, tr- a true success story. And that loan guarantee program was founded under the auspices of uh, some will fail, some will succeed, right? Not all will succeed. 
And in, indeed, some did succeed. And Tesla is now becoming a, a major industrial force in the automotive industry. Uh, people really still scratch their heads, I think, sometimes about what the actual future is and what the actual you know, financials are behind car manufacturing of that sort. But you can't argue with the environment that it's created and the point that if you do uh, play your cards right and you have something that's disruptive and you've got a very strong visionary leader, uh, that you can really make a difference. Hmm. Uh, the other thing that's happened is that whenever one of these small companies uh, downsizes or goes into bankruptcy or closes, they have inherently a number of people inside of them who were uh, trained, smart, understood the technology, uh, understood the issues around whatever the technology was and the market that they were trying to sell into. Many of these people go on to either found or work in other co- or companies, not mm-hmm. countries, but companies that have a much better chance of success because mm-hmm. the people who were doing it have already been through it once. Um, and so I, I personally am seeing from the people that we, of course, when we went, when we went into Chapter 11, uh, we let go a, a lot of our employees, and many of them now are at other firms, and they are doing really well. And uh, this is sort of a, a, a un, it's very difficult to monetize or to keep track of the value of that, but it, mm-hmm. it's a real thing. So finally, give me a sense of what you see happening um, with all, like America's energy mix in the next few years. Um, my understanding is about 10% right now of our energy comes from solar and wind combined. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going to happen? Is it going to stay at 10% for a long time? Is that about to shoot up? Where, where are we going? So I believe it's going to go up. Uh, I think a lot of the policies that are actually dictating how many renewables are we, we integrate are state policies as opposed to federal policies. I don't – and the other massive thing here that's happening is the price – of uh, natural gas resource is continuing to be low. And in fact, there's a, just even more natural gas, I think, than people anticipated, uh, which means that uh, we'll probably be bringing on fewer, uh, even despite the, the desire by some to, to buttress the coal industry, um, the finances of coal don't, don't compete very well with natural gas hmm. and now not even so well with solar or with wind. Hmm. Now, solar and wind... Uh, per their nature, are intermittent, right, right as we've talked right, about. Right, so you right. need to figure out how to, to co-locate some other resources to make it a continuous power source. But uh, I think if you look at what the states want to do, and you know the very forward-looking states like California and New York and others are pretty aggressive about this, and they're going to continue to install renewable assets at the expense of installing traditional fossil assets. Mm. And so it will continue, I think, to develop. Jay Whitaker is a professor of energy, engineering, and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. He's also the director of the Scott Institute for Energy Innovation. Jay, thanks so much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. And I say, it's all right. And as it happens, Tesla just finished installing the world's largest battery in South Australia. It can power tens of thousands of homes for about an hour, but the idea is that it's going to help bolster the electrical grid. The battery is connected to a wind farm. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org.
Support for Innovation Hub's environmental and sustainability reporting is provided by the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. We think a lot about what people say. We share their excitement when they say, I just got a promotion, or I just took a great vacation. We're sad when they tell us that a friend or someone in their family is sick. What we don't think a lot about is how they say what they say. For example, did you know that saying no comes slower to us than saying yes? And that's true in every language, that it takes more time before we answer no. Or that the time that it takes to answer a question, on average, is 200 milliseconds. Nick Enfield is a professor of linguistics at the University of Sydney. And when he was just starting out, he went to Laos to study the native language, Lao. And he noticed something odd. When I tried to transcribe what people said, those nice, well-structured sentences that I'd learned in university were not being produced uh, at all. What we, what we had were these sort of false starts and these recyclings and these cutoffs and these uh, hesitation markers and so forth. And I started to realize that, uh, well, in, in that kind of a situation where you closely analyze uh, what people are saying, then you really see those things right in front of your face. And the thing about natural conversation is that when we're participating in it, we don't have the time, we don't have the mental uh, sort of bandwidth to, to pay attention to all those little things, although we do process them at some level. Enfield spent years afterwards thinking about those little things that we all do, but that we don't really process, that we don't really pay attention to, like say, um and uh. Apparently, on average, for every 60 words we utter, we use filler words like um and ah uh, once. Enfield is the author of How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation, and he says years of paying attention to a world that's hidden, a world that's filled with all sorts of crutches, like, for example, the word like. It's taught him a lot. It's something that we really underestimate and most people don't know much about is just the sheer amount of psychological processing that goes on when we just put simple sentences together. I have to, mm. you know, retrieve the words from deep in my mind and I have to encode them into various uh, sounds and then I have to pronounce them and there's mm. all sorts of motor programs that need to be executed and so on. So it's a miracle we can speak at all, right. um, <laughs> let alone speak fluently. And so mm. You know, using things like um, uh, etc. could be uh, certainly do function in some way as fillers, as you put it, um, in the sense that they give you a little bit of time. You know, they give you a bit of a buffer to get your kind of signal together. But they also give the hearer uh, important information, which is, you know, as a speaker, I'm not finished yet. Uh, and therefore I'm asking that you just hold off because I'm, I'm not ready to pass over the right. floor to you. So right. that they have these sort of regulatory uh, functions. And, and then I suppose there'd be one other function at least, and that is that sometimes we can choose between different versions of these. And uh, you mentioned the word like mm -hmm. uh, as a kind of filler, and this is right. one that's a lot of people have an opinion about. And it, it might be associated with younger people. It might be associated with people of a certain sort of you know, subculture or what have you, um, if that's the case, then what you're also doing by choosing this filler as opposed to this other filler is somehow signaling your identity. Mm -hmm. So these are very multi-purpose um, little objects in language. And so, uh, you know, that's in a sense one of the reasons why I'm, I'm going into bat for them in a certain sense. 
Um, I used I used to have a uh, music teacher in eighth grade, and he would just sit at his desk at the front of the classroom, and as one of the students was speaking, he would count on his fingers, and you could just see that the fingers going up, how many likes he heard while you were answering his question, just to show you how <laughs> annoying it was to him that you kept saying like. Um, are there, have, how long have people been saying like for? Are there gender differences? Are there age differences with these kinds of, like these filler words? Well, uh, you know, like is not actually a word that I talk about in the book, but there is work on it. Um, and in fact, I have a student, Ellen Shed, who's uh, recently done a study of exactly this word in, in Sydney. Uh, and she found that uh, people had very strong beliefs if you ask them about the word like um, in terms of who they think uses it. So what she <laughs> found was that whether whichever part of town you talk to people in, uh, they would say, well, you know, it's just this one part of town where people would use that, you know, in the, in, the, in the sort of the northern beaches part of Sydney, which is a little bit kind of Californian in its, in its uh, culture, <laughs> yep, if you yep. like. And, and people would always say, well, that's where they're always using like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of girls who go shopping and that sort of thing. And they had very strong views about the, uh, the stereotypes of the people who would use like. But what Eleanor found was that actually if you record these people's speech, which she did, it doesn't matter which part of town you come from, you use huh. it just the same and use it a lot. Hmm. So um, this is a very good example of the kind of thing where you've got people's sort of uh, beliefs about language differing quite substantially from their actual behavior. I think people would be shocked at how much um and uh there probably is in their speech, as you were saying. Like if somebody were to transcribe what they were saying, that it would be all over the place. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's, the, it's, it's a very well-known observation in, in linguistics when you go and interview a person or ask a person about how they speak, they will uh, have certain opinions about or beliefs rather about how they talk. They'll, they'll say, for example, I don't, I don't use that hesitation mark or I would never say like in that way. Right, or, right. You know, right. I, don't, I don't do focal fry or whatever. But <laughs> all you have to do is make a recording of them and then play it back to them and they'll be shocked uh they'll go into you know the the seven stages or whatever it is you know <laughs> denial grief <laughs> anger it, with respect to their own language so it's 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 genuinely very surprising uh and sometimes sort of unsettling to hear how you actually talk given the sort of confidence with which we have beliefs about how we how we talk hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Nick Enfield, author of How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation. Um, So one of the points that you make is that conversations, just like any civilization, um, conversations have rules. Tell me some of the rules and whether we're good at abiding by rules in conversation. Well, the rules really have to do with the kind of norms of behavior in social interaction. And so a really simple example and I think kind of powerful example of the rules of conversation uh, would be that if somebody asks you a question, you should give them an answer if you can. And if you can't give the answer, you should say something that mm-hmm. accounts for that. So, you know, if I, if I ask you a simple question like, what time is it? 
if you know the time, you should tell me. If you don't know it, you should say something like, sorry, I don't know, or I right. haven't got my watch or what have right, you. Right, right, right. And that's quite a powerful rule with things like questions, with things like greetings. If I greet you, I say good morning. You know, it's not a law. You can't be put in jail for not answering my question. Well, you can in court, of course, but in everyday conversation, if you didn't answer my question, well, I can just say, well, that person's, you know, a bad person or a, a jerk or what have you. But that's precisely the effect of going against these rules mm. is that it really gives you a bad reputation. Um, it, it's a very uncooperative thing to do. So that would be one kind of very powerful example is, mm. is the... It's the matter of asking people questions and expecting answers. And what you're really doing when you ask a question is not just seeking a piece of information, but putting an obligation on on the other person. And mm-hmm. it, you know, it's not a it's not a very heavy kind of obligation. People are very happy to help typically by giving you the information or by telling you that they that they don't know it. But precisely because we're sort of so willing, we it's not really visible to us that we're actually have you know we've been put under an obligation. Right, right. Another right. example is the if I tell you uh, a narrative, if I launch my little narrative by saying, you know, let me tell you what happened on the bus this morning, mm-hmm. there's a kind of set of rules where you really need to, as a listener, when you say, uh-huh, or go ahead, um, you're playing by the rules of conversation in that respect. What you're doing is taking up, you know, what seemed like an invitation, but what really is a kind of a, you know, a passing on of obligations. You're taking that up and you're playing by those rules and then, as the story goes along, the rules of conversation say, you know, you really need to be showing that you're paying attention. You need right. to be nodding from time to time, saying uh-huh from time to time. <laughs> and then when the punchline comes, responding in an appropriate way. So you can always try to disobey those rules. It's something that, you know, sometimes we do in undergraduate classes at university is to say to people if you really want to see how these rules how powerful they are just try disobeying them you know in your own everyday life Mm -hmm. for example just ignoring questions people ask or walking (laughs) off in the middle of someone's story right and you'll quickly find out just how powerful those right that you kind of get this uh, black mark for doing that absolutely and people will sanction you very very powerfully and say what's wrong with you how do you see conversation, how has it changed over the last few decades and how do you see it changing? I don't think that conversation itself in the in the kind of context among friends and family in informal settings, I don't think that the real fundaments of it change. Okay. Um, the, the fact that we've got these kinds of rules, the fact that we use these kinds of traffic signals and these special sort of rules about the timing of our interactions the fact that we hold others accountable for whether they answer or don't, these types of things don't change. I think that some of the more superficial aspects of these things will change. So, for example, uh, a certain filler might Mm -hmm. become more popular than another Mm -hmm. one, but in the end it's simply one little device replacing another one for what is fundamentally the same function. All of those things presuppose the kind of infrastructure for conversation and, and that, I think, is something that's much more ancient, much more extinctive, if you like, um, in humans and is not really apt to change. Nick Enfield is the author of How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation. He's also a professor of linguistics at the University of Sydney. Nick, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I'm saying talking blues, talking blues, talking blues, talking blues. They say your feet is just too big for your shoes. 
On our Facebook page, we've got a great article by linguist John McWhorter looking at the evolution of the word like. That's at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. And it is the last week for our interns, Sarah Frazier and Kaya Williams. They have been an amazing part of our team for the last few months, and we want to thank them for all their hard work on the show and wish them lots of luck. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. And from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, danafarber.org slash beatcancer. PRI, Public Radio International.